Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Episode 142 of The Morning After. I'm Jesse Kiefer. I'm Sarah Kamen. On today's show, Ivan Orkin, ramen master of Ivan Ramen in Tokyo and here in New York City. Later in the show, we will TMA, The Morning After, quizify Ivan. We'll see how he does on that. But first, Miss Sari Kamen, it's lovely to see you, and I know you have some food news. I do, I do. All right, first off, starting from the great state of none other than Texas, down, in, down in good old Houston, not to be confused with Houston, uh, a man was kicked out of a restaurant for having facial tattoos. Oh, that's uh, just discrimination. Well, of course it is. But the best part is it's not just any restaurant that this happened at. It was a so-called restaurant. Are you familiar with the term, Ivan? Uh, I, I'm not, but uh, it seems it, we, we're always making new words these days. Well, it's a, it's a combination of breasts and restaurant. In case you didn't figure that one out yourself. I'm not against that. <laughs> you, you get breasts on the menu along like with your breasts? chicken wings. Okay, oh, yeah. chicken wings <laughs> and boobies kind of place. You know, Hooters might have been the original <laughs> restaurant. So this guy walked in and he was immediately escorted out because he had some tattoos on his face. Um, and so not only was this place, it's called Bombshells. It's an it's an army themed, a military themed, breast themed restaurant. There are shots like as in alcohol shots on the menu called waterboarding and don't ask, don't tell. You can order that. Stop. I can't stop because it's true. And they kicked out a guy for having a tattoo on his face. Yeah, they should be closed, not kicking out Tattoo Face Johnny. I know. And poor Tattoo Face Johnny. Like, I looked at the picture. He has, like, a couple dots on his face. He doesn't even have, like, you know, anti-USA propaganda or, like, anti-breast sentiments on his face. No, wait. Breast meaning chicken breast, right? No. Like, Like, lady boobs. Wow. Yes. Okay. It's like the kind of place where waitresses wear tops, and I use that word loosely, mm-hmm. that are rather revealing, and their face, their pictures are plastered all over the menu, and there's like certain uniforms that show a lot of skin, and like that's why people go. It's not for the chicken breasts. No. It's for the waterboarding shots <laughs> and the boobs. Is it wrong that I, like, I want to go there once? Yes. And then I yes. want to like create a, a morning after boycott of bombshells well, for all of our listeners there in Houston. I think we can do that right now. Okay. First, I think you ha- first you have to go to Houston. Yeah, I'm boycotting yeah, it. I'm not, I'm, I guess I'm not I'm on the way. I'm never going there. Yeah. I'm not um, on the way to Houston Yeah, but this, this guy like yelped about his experience and there has been a lot of complaints. So don't go there, you guys. For this is the temptation. <laughs> especially if you have tattoos on your face. <laughs> and especially don't do that. Okay. Um, so weird. Wow. That's a great story, Sarah. Thanks. That makes my I morning, I think. didn't make it up. Okay. I wish I did. Uh, okay. Moving on. I don't know. Have you guys heard about this like race together thing that's been going on at Starbucks? Have you heard about this? 
Um, you mean the way they're putting putting slogans on cups? Yeah, 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 exactly. So the CEO of Starbucks has invited his employees to to write on a cup, like hashtag race together before giving a customer their coffee. And that is, I guess, it's like a, it's code. It's like an invitation to saying like, let's have a, like an open and frank discussion about race relations right now. Oh, I was thinking like running race. <laughs> that would be to get better. <laughs> No, it's Hello. actually like, let's talk about race, like, while I hand you your, like... With a hashtag. Mocha, chica, fraca, shaka, laka. Like, drink right now. So a lot of people are like, okay, that's great. And then other people are like, that's completely inappropriate. Like, having race discussions with your baristas, totally out of context. It makes no sense, and it's, like, trivializing the entire issue. Are they, like, handing a cup and being like, I am of German descent, like what, what are they they're no they're, <laughs> they're like, like i would love to talk to you about ra- like how you feel about racial issues right now and all i can think of is like oh my god that holds up the line like what about all the other people waiting right <laughs> it doesn't sound like it's gonna work i don't know a lot of people are pissed about it but also like think about the way you feel before you've had coffee like yeah and someone wants to do like a hard hitting you know question with you like not racist but like kind of angry in general like just don't ask don't please ask. don't ask me that i know <laughs> I know. There were some really good tweets. I want to read my favorite tweet that someone wrote in response. Having to talk hashtag race together with a woman in Lulu lemon pants while pouring pumpkin spice is just cruel, <laughs> says a tweeterer. <laughs> oh, I like that tweeterer. I think that sums it up. Yep. 100%. Um, okay. Lastly, Jess, this is for you. High levels of arsenic found in two buck chuck and other popular California wines. You heard? Yeah, I mean, all I have to say is, duh. <laughs> Why? I mean, arsenic. It's cheap wine. Like, well, there's going to be all, it's gonna be all sorts of chemicals in there. Of course, there's going to be crap in there, like arsenic. I mean, they said that there's arsenic in our drinking water, like certain levels of it. So, right. It's, you know, I don't know if it's from the water or if people are just, well, that, a was, the, rat that was the backlash. People are like, well, there's arsenic in water. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, keep, I was going to say, you make don't it need okay. to drink it. <laughs> No. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly, I think that these producers like Franzia and w- Menage a Trois. And Menage a Trois, no. Yes, no. Menage a Trois. And um, I, I can't remember the other one off the uh, top of my head. Fra- yeah. Two Buck Chuck, Menage a Trois, Moscato, and Franzia. White Grenache. Ooh la la. Uh, <laughs> among others that I guess weren't named in this particular article. They tested more than 1,300 bottles of wine and was shocked to discover they had some very high levels of arsenic, which can be incredibly harmful to humans. Duh. I mean, the lesson learned, Sari, is just don't drink cheap wine. Dude, I don't. I don't think you do, but I'm saying it to the mass, the, the masses I don't think there. any of our listeners would or do, and now they definitely won't. You know, I have been known to drink some Vendage Sauvignon Blanc at a barbecue uh, in Huntington Beach, California. Every now once. and then, I know you to slum it a little bit. I'm okay with that. Okay, just be careful. <laughs> I will. I'll test my blood levels for arsenic. Okay. I'll be no dying on the morning after, <laughs> especially at the hand of wine. Oh, yeah. Not allowed. Not allowed. Not allowed at all. Okay. Those are, that was great news. Wow. I don't thanks. know where I've been. I mean, I definitely heard that story, but the other two were just... Well, I've missed you. <laughs> I've missed you too, Sari. I mean that. Let's take a break here. We're going to come back with Ivan Orkin of Ivan Ramen. Yay.
You are listening to Knife Show. This is The Morning After on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. National Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. And we're back here on the morning after a self-proclaimed Japanophile, Ivan Orkin from Long Island originally opened a ramen shop in Tokyo and earned the Japanese seal of approval, becoming one of the most popular ramen shops in Tokyo. Now he has two Ivan ramens here in New York City. Welcome to the morning after Ivan Orkin. Hello. So nice to have you here. Yeah, it is. It's lovely, uh, sunny Brooklyn. Yeah. Finally. <laughs> exactly. Uh, radio listeners can't see that, but they know it. it's true. So um, I guess what started your love affair with, with Japan in general? Um, well, I, I, was a, uh, I, I, got a, I got a job at a sushi bar in, uh, in 1978, washing dishes. What was a sushi bar like in 1978? It was one of the first ones. <laughs> it was out in Long Island? It was out in Long Island, in Syosset, Long Island, right in town, next to the train station. And um, I got five bucks off the books, which back then was quite a bit of money. And, um, and, um, I don't know, I, you know, it was, I took to it the minute I walked through the door. Um, I've always, I've always had sort of this weird love affair with food and I grew up with a mom who had a, an anti love affair with food. Um, and so, you know, I've always sort of had this, I always had this thing about food. And when I got this, this was sort of my first real job. Um, and, and you got to eat, which was cool. And uh, and so I would go into work from school. I'd ride my bike after school and, and to start, and I would sort of wash all the dishes from their you know from their prep, and then you know start you know, and then we'd have family meal. And um, you know, I wrote about this in my book, but there was a funny you know my favorite story or my one of my favorite memories was of you know going to work after school and being really really hungry, and you know saying to the chef, you know, I'm just I'm just famished. You know, um, and he he grabbed a bowl and he cracked an egg and he poured soy sauce into it and he he whipped it up into a f- crazy froth and he poured it over a bowl of hot rice and sprinkled seaweed on top and he sort of gave it to me and I was like, ooh, <laughs> <laughs> what are these flavors? Um, and my recollection is that I while while it was a little slimy, I really liked it and maybe it was some sort of indoctrination because after that I was sort of in. 
um, and the guys were really nice. They were the nicest people, and I would sit down with them every day, and we would eat, you know, the leftover scraps from cleaning the fish, and we'd eat raw tuna, and we'd eat like, uh, you know, the uh, hearts and 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 livers and and squid guts and all kind, and I and I loved all of it, and I really was into it, and um, and I worked there for about a year. And um, it's funny because from that on, I was, I was just a hardcore sort of uh, a sushi lover. Um, so whenever my parents would take us out, I'd always say, oh, can't we get sushi? And, and on my birthdays, I would always ask to go to this, the sushi place. And you know, my parents would say, well, why, why don't you get the sushi deluxe? And I'd say, mom, I, I order by the piece. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that like a faux pas if you order like sushi deluxe? No, not at all. But, but you know... I think that the rhythm of sushi is better experienced by ordering it a little bit at a time. So then you get, you know, you know. I, I think the style of eating in Asia in general, but in also for in Japan, is that a lot of restaurants are really sort of the the the. Uh, um, there's a real collaboration between alcohol and and bites. And, you know, you sort of, you get, you order a few things, you eat them, you sip whatever you're, you're drinking and you, and then you chat and you have this nice flow. Whereas, you know, I've always sort of felt like sometimes Western dining is, you know, you, you chat, you get food, you stop talking, you eat, then you come up for air and you talk more and it's cleared and you get the next course and not always. And I think now that small plates are becoming a very important part of our dining culture, that's, it's changing. Um, and, um, certainly at, at my restaurant, but, um, it's it, it you know it was, I was I think that when you think about it that way it's really cool that you know rather than getting this one platter of fish that they they made them all and put them all on one plate you know you get a piece you eat it you contemplate its texture and flavor and then you say okay you know now I'll have you know yeah. this this and that I imagine you're really savoring something more if you're not already anticipating what your next bite is yeah and I've always I so I've always you know and I've always mostly sat at the counter and if there's another counter seat I eat something else yeah my family's approach when uh, I remember when the first sushi restaurant opened in Cleveland, Ohio uh, in the 90s. <laughs> and I remember my family's approach was ordering one of those boats. Sure. It was like a wooden boat <laughs> just stacked with sushi. And it was like, okay, ready, set, go. Yeah, and attack. You just, <laughs> attack. And it was like, who could get the most sushi? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where, yeah those we're not Japan. Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> so then you, you moved, you ended up moving to, to Japan in, in the 90s, correct? In the 80s. In the 80s. I um well so uh, you know when I when I finally you know I left and I did other jobs and that was that job lasted about a year but um, the experience of the of, of the people really stayed with me so when I went to college um, I still hadn't fulfilled my foreign language requirement and so I decided I'm going to look for a college that offers Japanese so the only schools I applied to were schools that had a Japanese program was that hard to find in 1983 it was. Yeah. I mean, not impossible, but, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, the best schools had it, you know, but I wasn't going to get into Michigan or Berkeley or Harvard, you know, Um, but Boulder had one. And so did the University of Arizona, which were the two schools I applied to. Uh, Yeah. One, both like beautiful places. One was sunny and warm. One was like gorgeous and and wintry. Um, And, you know, I had heard that Boulder was one of the most beautiful places in the country. And I just thought, you know. I'm not ready to go to California yet, which is weird. It's almost sort of like a weird Grateful Dead thing. Like, I didn't want to go to California <laughs> just because I love the totally Grateful Dead. Um, Boulder's close enough, though. Boulder's <laughs> close enough. Um, and so I chose Boulder, and um, and I just ended up becoming a Japanese major um, I, and everything, you know, language. And I studied ancient poetry and modern literature and history and, and that whole thing. And, and, I, and it really, I really loved it. And um, 
And so when I graduated, I, like most uh, 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 undergraduate uh, um, graduates, you don't know what the heck you want to do with your life. So I thought, well, if I spend four years studying a foreign language, I guess the next step is to go live in that country. So uh, that's how I ended up in Tokyo in 1987. And so it just, I, you know, I was reading some of your introduction of your book today, and it was really interesting to read you just describe yourself in like a very self-deprecating way at that time. That's Jewish. <laughs> I can relate. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, like to me, it just struck me as such an achievement that you were able to just go to school and pick up Japanese. I mean, that in itself is, is pretty extraordinary. I suppose. I mean, listen, it's been a lifelong process. I mean, I'm 51 and I've been speaking Japanese or, or studying it for, you know, 30 years. Um, so it's and I opened a business and did it myself in in that country without using any English. So it's it's gotten better and better and better over the years. I mean, I was just I just had lunch with one of my good friends from college days, and she was also a Japanese major, and she's a she's a, a, um, a university professor in Japanese. Um, but I said to her, I mean, I have not studied Japanese since I graduated college. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I I don't write down vocabulary. I don't you know. Although I'm about to take a challenge. Because my reading and writing has really slipped over the years. And so I've decided that I'm going to finally become fluent in reading and writing. So I'm, I'm like sort of gearing up. And I'm trying to think about how to have it be this sort of a, a public enough thing so that if I don't do it, I'll be embarrassed. Jesse, what's, what's on that TMA quiz you got there? It's, it's not Japanese. Oh. But, um, okay. but I think he just said that publicly he is going to be studying, uh, like relearning the language. So. I need to be able to read the <laughs> Feel paper. Feel free to do it on our radio show. Yeah. I think he just did. That's yeah. right. I think so. That's right. I <laughs> got I got I got to throw down the gauntlet, you know. Yeah. So then you end up opening a ramen shop in Tokyo and did everyone think you were kind of crazy to do that? Yes. <laughs> I think you are. Did yeah. you think you were kind of crazy? I didn't. <laughs> well, but I thing. think everything I do is good. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, Jewish. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I mean, it's funny. I, I, you know, it's like uh, people would say it's it's so amazing that you could do something like that. Or it's very unlikely. But it, but to me, you know, I had been living in Tokyo already for, you know, three and a half, four years. And my wife is, is Japanese and my children are half Japanese. And we... We lead a very sort of interesting hybrid lifestyle. You know, we speak both languages at home. We watch, like, you know, both types of television and t both types of music. And, you know, we're just, I mean, my brain is very a mishmash of both languages and cultures. So I, to me, opening a business in Tokyo, while it was challenging, and I, and, and I knew there was a whole hook in there and the white guy doing ramen and all that. But I guess at the end of the day, as far as I'm concerned, I belong in Tokyo. And anybody who says I don't, you know, they can go where, you know, where. So to me, it's like, you know, when to me doing that made sense while it was, of course, a challenge. And, and then and then, of course, I had the other thing to, to fall back on, whereas if I failed, it's like, of course you failed. You yeah, know, you're a white guy trying to open a ramen shop in Tokyo, you know, so it was kind of a cool project to choose, you yeah. know. And then at what point did you go to cooking school? Well, I went to cooking school uh, in 1991. Uh, or 90 or 91, I don't remember. Did um, you open your shop first? No, 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 okay. no, 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 no. I'm, I'm sort of, I'm a Japanophile turned chef, you know, so I've always loved food. And then, you know, and then I discovered this love of Japanese and, and I've sort of, it's been this sort of lifelong growing passion. And um, I'm not really a Japanese geek. I mean, I don't like 
do manga and I don't study, you know, traditional Japanese architecture or anything like that. I mean, I, I you know, I just something about the culture. I mean, I think I'm probably, I was probably Japanese, yeah. you know, at some point in a former life. And so I feel there's just this very warm affinity I have for the country. And, and um, I don't think of myself as Japanese. I just think that I belong there when I'm there. Hmm. Um, and uh, so, you know, I ended up going to cooking school after doing a bunch of jobs that sucked and that I didn't like. And my Japanese wasn't good enough and I wasn't geeky enough to become, you know, uh, a Japanese professor or like or go work at Dentsu, the advertising company. Or, uh, that wasn't what I was. I was never white collar and I wasn't academic. Yeah. Um, so I didn't know what to do with my language skills. So I sort of left Japan after three years. I said, you know what? I don't know what to do with this. I got to go. Um, and then after like some agonizing in my late 20s, like, oh, my God, I'm in my late 20s and I don't know what I want to do, which, you know, I mean, nowadays I think you get a little more slack. But, you know, in my generation, I think when you're 29 and you still haven't decided what you are, I mean, you're starting to be like a loser, you know. Um, and I think I realized, hey, you know, I love food and maybe it's time to do something about it. And so I went to the Culinary Institute in Hyde Park. Um, it was a good time to go. It was still kind of hardcore. It was, it, was, it was, you know, it was becoming a big business, the cooking school thing. But it was right when there still weren't a lot of cooking schools. It was, the, the teacher could still hit you, you know. Yeah, so it, was like all, it was all like pirates, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, the chefs smoked cigarettes in the kitchen. You know, it was just, it was just you know, it was still uh, a little bit cowboy. Um, and you still needed real balls if you wanted to make it in the kitchen. And, and, and it was, uh, um, I mean, it's still sort of so these days, but there was a lot more honor and there was a lot more sense of, of sort of the craft, I think, you know, when I first started. Um, it was a good time, I think, to come up, you know, um, especially because when I came up, it was sort of the cusp of the world thinking that, of course, no one can cook in America. There is America's French fries and pizza and burgers and milkshakes. The French make real food. And I'm, that's, that's my generation when, you know, you know, I worked for Bobby Flay, who was, you know, one of, the, the, one of those guys who said, you know, we actually make real food, homegrown food, really great food. And, you know, and, you know Larry Forgione and, and Charlie Palmer and, and, you know, all these guys who, who really finally said to the world, hey, you know, we can cook. Um, and now, of course, people copy us. Um, but, but so it was a very interesting time to, to start cooking, you know. I've always been a very big fan of ramen, but I actually have no idea as to, like, the, the origin of it. Or specifically, if there is one, you know, one original way to make it, and then there have been, like, offshoots from there. Right. Well, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a Chinese dish. Um, I mean, I think it's, you know, it, it came into Japan, you know, many hundreds of years ago, but it didn't really catch on until the, the turn of the 20th century. And, um, and then I don't think it really became what it is that you see now until the late 90s. You know, um, it was always sort of a street food, a kid's food, a, a, a blue collar worker's food. Um, you know, you wouldn't see a, a pretty woman in a nice dress eating in a ramen shop. Uh, most of them were pretty gritty. Um, and I think that in the late nineties, this ramen boom sort of started and, um, it started to pick up speed. And when I started, when I came back to Tokyo in 2003, so I was always, you know, I, I lived in New York. I lived in Japan for a couple of years, moved back for like 13 years. And over those 13 years, I could find pretty authentic sushi bars and I could, you could find like izakaya and like sakagura where you go into the basement. It's like being in Tokyo and you're drinking sake. That's really pretty good. And, and you, could, you could find your Japanese vibe 
back in the 90s, but there was no ramen. You know, like Sapporo served a bowl of ramen, but even it was only okay, and, and it wasn't it wasn't a ramen shop vibe. And so, I really missed ramen. And so there was this, this aching desire to eat ramen for years and years and years. So when my wife and I moved back, it was like this: the ramen boom was now starting to pick up speed, and there was more and more like ramen magazines, and you know, the, all these chefs were on these variety shows and talking about their ramen. So it was a very cool time, and. We were eating ramen like crazy, you know. Uh, she, I would drive, and she would have her little flip phone, and she would have this thing called the Ramen Navi. Um, it, was, it was a little, it was like a ramen navigation app, and you could find ramen shops. So I would, she'd go, oh, I turned, now this was also before you had the car navigation. So we'd have like, <laughs> wow. you know, we'd have a, she'd have like a map on her, on her lap. And and then and and the thing open and she'd be like oh, turn left turn right here you know go down this road and and then there'd be like a line of thirty people she that's the place and we you know we park and we go eat ramen and um, and that's sort of how it started when we went back that we were just eating a ton of ramen um, and I had never thought about having a ramen shop once in my life I mean I, I mean it's like it's funny because some people interview me and they say so you went to Japan and you know you studied with the ramen masters for ten years and then you fulfilled your dream of having a ramen shop and I'm like no wow. not really I, I was a stay at home dad and my wife was like you know what you're irritable and you're sitting like watching downloaded episodes of Grey's Anatomy and it's time for you to like do something maybe you know and, and if you make your own ramen we won't have to wait in line that's right so I so I you know it's it sort of it, it just sort of happened like that it was just like you know I needed the job I didn't really want to work for anybody anymore. I wasn't. I just was no longer down with working in a restaurant and uh, having a having a boss. Um, and so I kept saying, hmm, "What should we do?" I wanted to have a sandwich shop, but you know, and then I wanted to have. We talked about a bunch of different options. My wife kept saying, "Do a ramen shop. It's a great idea." There's there's no American guys doing a ramen shop. It's a great hook. It'd be really fun. Were you, you not know? like? For good reason. There's no American guys doing ramen in Japan. Yeah, well, yeah. I was like, how the hell am I going to learn how to make ramen? I, you know, she's like, you'll, she's like, you're a really good cook. You'll figure it out. And and I was like, mm, I don't know, you know. And, <laughs> and even though I'm 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 really not shy when you know me and when I'm talking, but I'm actually can be quite shy. And like the idea of asking, you know, a guy just going into a ramen shop and saying, hey, would you know let me work here? And and I knew how mysterious the shops were, so I knew that it wasn't going to be like, hey, sure, come on in you can stay here for however long you want and I'll show you everything it doesn't really work that way so I knew it was going to have to be like a one or a two year commitment and I quite frankly I mean I've been cooking for 15 years and I didn't want to do a two year apprentice you know and I needed a job and I wanted to make money and um, so I said you know what I'm just going to sort of figure it out myself um, and uh that and a six day class on ramen making that I like dug up like in the middle of you know, Japan somewhere. Um, and um, and then I sat at home making ramen and just sort of playing around. Is there So the traditional ingredients that go into a bowl of ramen, I guess I'm thinking like pork broth, right? No, it doesn't have to doesn't be. It doesn't have to be. So mine isn't, really can't right? Be so mine's not pork broth. Um, here in the States, for whatever reason, you know, the, the Southern style, the Kyushu style, white pork broth has become very popular. Um, it's very clean. You know, it's the Ipudo style that a lot of people know about. Um um, I never, you know, when I went to Tokyo, uh, you know, just like, look, I mean, heavy flavored things tend to get very popular because they're easy to understand. They, they have a big umami kick. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's just fun to eat, but I tend, you know, I came up through more fine dining. I tend to like refined cooking more and refined flavors more. Um, so I would eat these heavy bowls of ramen, which I liked and I still like, 
but I always feel pretty crappy afterwards. You know, I'd be either really sleepy or I would have a terrible stomach ache or I wouldn't be able to eat anything for like 14 hours afterwards. I'd be bloated. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is not good. It's not like a diet thing. It's just like wrong to not want to eat until tomorrow, you know. Um, and then one day I went into a shop where they did more of the style I ended up doing, which was a double soup, which was a dashi broth made from kombu and smoked dried fish. Um, and and then uh, chicken chicken soup or even even a light pork soup, but blended together. So the broths were much much lighter. Um, I didn't feel as tired and, and burnt out after eating it. And um, the flavors were were sort of shinier to me, and, and I was really into it. So that so all your broths are half dashi. Yes, yeah. the Ivan Ramen signature. Not not necessarily because uh-huh. I still do. I'm a chef and I do whatever I want to do. So you know, but my the my signature. Shio and shoyu ramen are yes are, are 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 a blend of dashi and chicken and whole chicken soup, mm-hmm. um, and then I mean I've I've done mazeman which is noodles with much less broth it's almost more like a pasta vibe um, I'm gonna be doing a late night tonkotsu um, which is gonna be and it's gonna be like really like over the top fatty and rich with chunks of pork fat floating in it and that's coming up next week at at Slurp Shop for Passover (laughs) yes for Passover Um, although we we are going to have a Passover friendly ramen for the week of Passover we have uh, gluten free noodles and and no pork and and so you can get you can get your ramen thing going on with uh, without uh, desecrating the Passover uh, vows okay well before we get to kind of like what's coming up next and all that I I just want to hear a little bit about um like the the great success that happened in Japan and like how that happened so surprisingly quickly and then also a little bit about the backlash in terms of like what happened in Japan if there was any and then same with New York I mean there's been so many conversations revolving around like oh this white chef's doing Mexican food and this you know Korean chef is doing Chinese and and sort of like where you see yourself fitting in and what does authenticity mean to you and I know it's kind of like a loaded question, well, but it's like question. seven thousand. Those questions. were seven thousand questions. You got them all. I, I'll try. <laughs> yeah, um, I'll just I'll shut up. And well, just... <laughs> listen, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not stupid, and I knew that an American, and and also ramen is very sticky. So it, it's it's you know, the ramen shops that are most popular in Japan. You know, they they have some kind of theme or some kind of shtick or some kind of thing that hooks people. I mean, it it can just be the food, but a lot of times it's a charismatic owner or really fun, you know, decor or really amazing soundtrack, whatever it is. You know, the really popular shops usually have some kind of kind of cool groove going on. Um, and our shop's got a cool groove going on. It's fun, you know, uh, you know, uh, except that we played a lot of Grateful Dead. But besides that, you know, um, it was fun very, for some people, fun for some people and, and for the crazy people who don't like them, they have to suffer. <laughs> but the uh, but yeah, no, but all jokes aside, we had that fun stuff and I had the white guy hook, but I also made good food. And in the beginning, you know, I'd have people come in and be like, oh, boy, you know, there's a white guy. I had I would have people that would slide the door open, look in and walk out. Um, I, I've had, you know, but um, it kind of all started when my wife sent an anonymous email to the number one ramen blogger and said, hey, I just ate a bowl of ramen at this new shop and the owner is a white guy. It was pretty good. That's all she wrote. And the next day he was there. Um, Did you just out her? <laughs> no, I, I've already told the truth. Okay. But he uh, um, and and I think and it's funny because I interviewed him in the book. Uh, in my book, and I ta- and I asked him about this. I said, we said, I said to him, what was going on through your mind? Yeah. And he said, well, I got off the train and I'm walking to get to your shop. And he says, 
He said, I'll be honest, I was writing your terrible review in my mind. I bet a lot of people as were, I was were walking ready there. for you to fail. But then when he said, he said he came in and the kitchen was super clean because I'm a... I, you know, I'm an old-fashioned guy, and, and kitchens can't make good food if they're not clean. So it was shiny and clean, and, you know, we were using our noodles that we made in-house. And I was heating my meat, which was sort of a new thing that a lot of people don't do, and to keep everything hot. And, and, and they really liked the ramen. And so he wrote in his blog the next day that Ivan Ramen is delicious and everybody should go. And, and it sort of just started kind of speeding up from there. Um, and uh, um, and it was cool. And and I've you know I've, I've had plenty of naysayers. I still have naysayers. I mean, I had a guy when I opened Slurp Shop like the first week or two, and he told me the you know I, I went up politely to a group and I said, hey, how's the, how's everything going? And this guy goes, oh, that's good. And he goes, and this guy goes, tell him the truth. It's fucking horrible. And, and I was like, oh, really? He goes, yeah, I've been to Japan. I know. I've been there, and I know. And this is crap. And I was like. I was like, okay, well, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I don't fight with customers. So, Did you know uh, you're the chef? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. <laughs> and that you have a shop in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, well, someone who would say that and know, you know, to me, it's like, um, I love criticism. That That's good criticism because I don't think I'm perfect at all. And I, th- and I know I've made mistakes. And, you know, if someone says I went there and the waitress was really rude to me and the food was ice cold and the table was sticky and dirty. And I mean, then it's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know, I'm I'm, you know. On the phone, I'm in the restaurant, I'm fixing things, I'm checking, how can I make it better? And that does happen, and I love the, I mean, I'll, I'll take a hundred of those. I'd rather not have a hundred, but if there's a problem, I want to know, um, because I sh- it sh- that shouldn't happen. But most of, the, most of the negative things you hear are angry people who have nothing better to do with their time. And, yeah. and you know, to tell me I'm not legitimate or whatever, it's like... Okay, I don't I'm know. Sure I, every you chef know, gets that. Everybody, yeah. yeah. And and you know, it's you know, I don't know what authentic means. I mean, it's it's uh, you know, I've in my mind, I've decided what I think ramen is, and and I stick really close to my version. Um, but it's my version, and you know, I've said, you know what, I, I at Ivan Ramen, I'm an expert, <laughs> and I'm, I mean, and I would never claim to be an expert anywhere anywhere else, yeah. you know. But at Ivan Ramen. It's my place. I built it. I know what's going on there. I make all the rules. So, have you yeah. legally changed your last name to Ramen? I have not yet. I have not. No. But, uh. <laughs> where Where do you think New York is at this point in terms of like reaching peak ramen saturation levels? Oh my! It's not even close. Okay. <laughs> what do you mean? There's like no ramen shops here. Is, oh, okay. I mean, I don't know. In Tokyo, there's like eight thousand. Yeah. I mean, it's. Well, it's, it's, I'm uh, glad. I'm. It's good to hear that. Healthy I mean, competition I competition is always good. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's there's so much room, and it's just starting, really. You know, there's a you know for every person you talk to who says, "Oh, I love ramen," there's got to be fifty people who've never had it yet, and they and they've only heard about it, and or more. You know, it's not, it's still sort of a, a new food that you kind of need to be a little bit in the know, and 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 you know what happens with these things is people see them and they'll say, "Oh yeah, I saw another article about this thing called ramen." You know, we got to go try it, and. and um, so I think it's it's becoming popular and uh, a little bit more and more. I don't know what the saturation level will be. I mean, gosh, I mean, I, you know, 30 years ago, you could have said the same thing to me about sushi, right? Or 40 years ago, whatever it was, when I first started working. And, you know, in 1978, if I told you that people in middle of America would pick up a clamshell of California roll to take home to or to eat at the office, you'd say, that's crazy. No way. But, you know, people, sushi has become... 
American. I mean, almost everybody. And there's still, you'll, you'll find someone every once in a while says, yeah, I just can't do the raw fish. And those people still exist. But people have almost completely have bought in the idea of a rice sandwich. Do you still find people thinking that ramen is top ramen? Do you encounter yeah, I that do. And the funny thing about it is that I never ate it. What's I mean, top I, ramen? I, you know, the instant ramen, the brick of... of like oh, it's like a college. brick of noodles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you just call it college. <laughs> Drunk in college. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I never... I mean, I, 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 sort of, I sort of gave up instant fast food when I was in my teens, and I never ate it again. So I don't... You know, to me, people say, oh, it's just like the, the top ramen. And I'm like... I guess I never ate it. No, I mean, no, it's I, I didn't, nothing like top. Yeah. No, it's nothing like top. But no, I mean, I, but you know, and I get that question a lot, and it always makes me kind of chuckle because it's like any, I mean, there's just anything. I mean, you could say, uh, you know, do you want to have uh, you know a, a Keith McNally black burger for twenty two dollars, and what's the difference between that and and you know uh, McDonald's. a McDonald's you know quarter pounder with cheese? And it's like, do I even really need to? answer the question it's silly yeah. you know so to me it's all the same there's there's all different you know price points and there's all different kinds of things and you know what sometimes you might say you know what i'm drunk as hell and i want to eat top ramen because that's what i'm in the mood and i love that and there'll be nothing wrong with that answer it's yeah. you know it's different what what are your feelings on that kind of culture like that not that ramen is necessarily street food but i would call it i don't know kind of humble food that's had sort of well, you know, know, to me, ramen beginnings, I guess, but that kind of like elevation that happens, and then it becomes sort of haute cuisine. Well, see, I because I feel like ramen is a massively elevated food stuff to me, it's, and it's it's terribly underpriced. I know all of you who think it should be still be six dollars, like it is in Tokyo, in this in the most depressed economy in the world, practically. You know, it's it's a, it's an incredible slow food process. Um, it's much different than its Chinese counterpart. And I love Chinese noodles, but they're really different. You know, they're they're really simple. The broths they make in a Chinese restaurant, like a really simple ch- chicken broth that they make in a wok, and it's fast. And they pour it over some noodles with a little bit of scallion garnish, maybe a sprinkle of sesame oil or whatever. But it's super, you almost never get a complex bowl of Chinese you know noodles when you're having that kind of thing. And the the ramen has just been. It's it's gone through this incredible evolution over the years, over and over again. And even like if you hang out in Tokyo as much as I do, you know you can see like every year there's there's a, there's a new theme and there's like a new style. And like this year was potage, and everybody was making these soups thickened with 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 potatoes and corn and and what and mashed vegetables. And then the next year was the year of uh, beef ramen, and everybody was making like beef bone ramen. And and then like every year it's and a lot of it's getting almost invented by the ramen writers, but it's just the way they talk about all these evolutions and and um it's it's cool i mean it's interesting yeah, it but it's but it's it's it really has become this cre- incredibly complex sophisticated thing I mean, there's so many components to ramen I, I keep thinking like you were thinking about opening a sandwich shop and in a way sandwiches are kind of like ramen there you can add so many components you can call it so many different things uh, but it's well, still a know, sandwich and it's still ramen if you want to break it all the way down i mean uh, when you're as, as a, a chef might look at things to me all food is the same so when someone said to me oh my god you like you worked at lutes and now you have a ramen shop i'm so sorry to hear about your failure <laughs> and you know um but it's, you know, to me, it's like, to me, there's just good food and bad food. And, and you know, uh, a properly made 
uh, plate of food, you know, ramen's really no different than a, a nice plate of food you get in a, in a French restaurant or in, a, in, in a, an American restaurant, whatever it is, right? You have, you have garnishes that make sense, and you go to some restaurants where the garnishes make no sense, and, you know, you, there's a big chunk of carrot and broccoli, and you're like, what? Did you have a reason to have that chunk of broccoli on there? Do you, I mean, or do you just like the way it looks, you know? It doesn't enhance the dish. So, I mean, I mean or, or maybe that's just the level to where, the way I think about cooking but you know you know a good plate of food has balance and it has and it makes sense and you know it, you've thought through it and thought about how that sauce and that protein and that starch or vegetable or whatever kind of things you put on that plate and how they work together and and ramen is the same you know you there's there's a certain balance between the the noodles and the soup and the and the fat and the flavorings and and the toppings and the best bowls of ramens they ramen they slurp well you, you try to slurp them, and they slurp right up, and, and you have a big, super flavorful mouthful of wet noodles in your mouth, and, and, the, and the, the, the toppings don't interfere with the noodles and, and, the, and all those things, and it works like that, you know? And, if, and, and it's, so it's no different than going to a nice restaurant somewhere or having a good hot dog. Mm-hmm. I've had bad hot dogs where, like, the toppings make no sense. There's too much of it. The bread's too soft. You know, the, whatever sauce they put on made the bread wet. And, I mean, you're like, why, why would you do this to a hot dog? You know, so it's it's really not that much different, right? I mean, you could have a bad hot dog. And I tell you what, a bad hot dog bums me out just as much as a bad meal at a four-star restaurant. Totally agree. And now I'm starving, by the <laughs> way. Um, Ivan, where uh, where are your shops in New York City so that anybody listening can can check them out? Uh, one, my main shop is uh, at, at uh, 25 Clinton Street between Stanton and Houston on the Lower East Side. Uh, closest is the Essex Street, Delancey Street station. And the other one is on uh, 45th and uh, between uh, 44th and 44th on 11th. Uh, it's in the Gotham uh, West Market. And it's a very fun place. You can... Have Wi-Fi and toilets and tapas and beer and blue bottle coffee oh and tacos. What and else could you possibly want <laughs> for? I have to tell you something. As a lifelong New Yorker, even though I even though I took you know ten you know ten fifteen years off in Tokyo, um, you can never find a toilet. So yeah. any place that's got a toilet for me gets a full <laughs> extra star, um, and uh, and then it's got Wi-Fi, so you can add another yeah. half or another full star to that. So it's uh, I don't know. That's how I see New York sometimes. You know, toilets uh, and ramen. Toilets and ramen. I'm Pretty moving perfect. in. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna take a break here on the morning after, and we're gonna come back with the morning after quiz. Listening to Knife Show on Heritage Radio Network.org. Hey, what's up? This is John Norris, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. And we're back here on the morning after. Um, we've been talking with Ivan Orkin of Ivan Ramen about ramen, but now we're going to talk about something completely irrelevant to his life. Um, so Ivan 
Orkin is your last name. A name in which you share with a very famous company, Orkin <laughs> Pest Control. I wish. <laughs> so, Mr. Orkin, we want to know what you know about Orkin. It's time for the morning after quiz. You ready? Yeah. Three questions, all multiple choice. No pressure, but no one's ever gotten them all right. Okay. So, there's a first for everything, right? You go for it. All right, here we go. Founded in 1901 by Otto Orkin, what was Orkin Pest Control's original name? Is it A, Orkin the Rat Man, B, Orkin the Critter Killer, or Otto Orkin's Poisons? Oh, no, I'll say three. You say three, C. C. Otto Orkin's Poisons. No, actually, it was Orkin the Rat Man. Nice. Oh, gross. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, he was like a, a kid, like a farm kid, and his parents were like, "Can you figure out how to kill the rats in the barn so that you have some use in our like, lives?" Sound like he kills rats? It sounds like he is a rat. <laughs> it was it was 1901, oh. so I don't I don't think they it was before they had the that. internet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so uh, question two: During World War One, Orkin was able to get the government to declare pest control as one of two service industries essential during wartime. Uh, was uh, which is the other service industry that was deemed essential? Is it A, dry cleaning service, <laughs> B, mortuary service, or C, beer brewing? I don't know. Mortuary service. Yes, mortuary service. It was okay. wartime. Yeah, it was, it was wartime. Well, but it was also more about like if your, you know, family member dies, like we're still going to provide the, you know, the manpower and the, uh, the and chemicals. chemicals. Exactly, and the chemicals and all of that to, uh, to mortuary service. Anyway, uh, all right, question three, the final question. In the 1950s, Orkin moved its advert, or moved, sorry. <laughs> In the 1950s, Orkin moved its advertisements to television. Their commercials featured their mascot, Otto the Orkin Man. What was Otto? Was he A, a clean-cut reformed rat? You know, like... <laughs> was like no didn't want to be a pest anymore is it b an anthropomorphized pesticide can or is it c a skull and crossbones i'll say b yes b an anthropomorphized pesticide can that was was from memory by the way (laughs) you remember this sure wow (laughs) was it like i'm I'm old and the spray can like danced around i can see it sprayed the bugs see it doing that wow what year was that uh, well, it was in the 50s. I think like 50, yeah, 50s. I remember, I remember the Orkin commercials. And I'm sure they moved into the 60s with probably the same the same mascot. They're now it's I think, just a guy with like the Orkin, you know, like diamond, red diamond hat or something yeah. like that. Yeah. But so that was two out of three. There you did you a go. great job. Really yeah. You did a great job. Really. Should have got. I should have guessed. I could have been the first one. Could have. Could have. Should have. Then the balloons would have come out of the ceiling. Exactly. Oh, so many exactly. And the champagne bottles would pop yes. and all of that. Yes. <laughs> you did really well. Thank you, Ivan, and thank you so much for being on the morning after. Pleasure. It's fun. Do you have a like a Twitter handle or Instagram? Yeah, or check out my Instagram at Ramen Junkie, um, and uh, and Twitter is at at Ivan Ramen. So I'd love to have uh, people take a look. I'm. Uh, I get some pretty good food porn going on there, and. Yeah, that's, we're big fans of that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's fun. It's uh, especially when I do these crazy Tokyo trips, and I like I go on like these crazy eating tears. Any coming up? Um, yeah, I think. I mean, I definitely, I'm definitely going to be there for extended in the summer, and I'm going to try to get back in the next uh, few weeks. But we'll see. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thanks for having. Sari, always great to see you. You as well. This is the morning after on Heritage Radio Network dot org. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.